We now have literally three men who control more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. That's pretty breathtaking. That had never happened in the history of the United States. And it's purely a result of neoliberal economic policies. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is the progressive radio host, Tom Hartman, to talk about his latest book and what else he's been up to lately. Tom has been on my show a number of times, so go back to episode 428 for more about his biography. This book is called The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. It's out in mid-September. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Tom Hartman of The Tom Hartman Show. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Tom, as someone who's been on my show a bunch of times, I just wanted to catch up with you a little bit since you have a well-listened-to progressive radio show. Can you give me just a sense before we get into your book about what you're talking about these days and what people are saying? What's the state of the nation from your lens? It uh, certainly appears to me, and I think my audience would agree, that the biggest challenge that America's facing right now is a series of uh, actions that cumulatively represent a, a threat to the ongoing maintenance of democracy in, in our Republican form of government. Probably the most corrosive element that has brought this about has been a series of decisions out of the Supreme Court. The uh, corporate personhood, which goes back to the late 19th century, and then uh, starting in 1976 and 78 with Buckley and Bellotti, and then tripling down with Citizens United in 2010, the, the idea that when a billionaire or, or anybody for that matter, or a corporation pours enough money down the throat of a politician that that politician basically does whatever that billionaire or corporation tells them to do, that you know, from the founding of our republic in 1789, I guess, until the 1970s, late 1970s or early 1980s, that was considered both bribery and political corruption. It was a crime that people went to jail for routinely. And now it's just, the Supreme Court says it's just free speech. It's protected by the First Amendment. And this has led to a whole series of bizarre dislocations from, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema being on the take to the entire Republican Party, basically running a, a grift rather than a legitimate political party. Do you count among these threats to democracy, the Trump presidency and his refusal to leave power after losing an election? Yeah, his refusal to leave power in and of itself 
ideally would be a situation that we could deal with. The problem is that we've got large chunks of the Republican Party that are with him on this. And in large part, because the billionaires who back them like the fact that these people are willing to keep their taxes really low. And the Russian trolls and people like Viktor Orban, who's an absolute autocrat in Hungary, he's going to be coming over and speaking in Houston at the CPAC convention. You know, Fox News broadcasts from his palace. Um, These are anti-democratic forces that have seized most of the Republican Party and seem to be hell-bent on turning America into a full-blown authoritarian oligarchy. It's a significant threat to the future of this country. So not much to worry about and not much to talk about, it sounds like. Right. (laughs) There you go. When I talk to people about the progressive ecosystem, which I've done pretty widely, uh, and I ask them where there are gaps, they often talk about it on the left in the media, that there's just a tremendous imbalance between kind of the world of Fox and the organs of the right and the lack of substantial reach on the left. You and I have talked about that. So my question is, how are you doing as a show, as a organ of the media on the left, and how are we doing more broadly? The problem that the left has in a, in a country where ever since the Reagan administration, we no longer enforce our antitrust laws, our anti-monopoly laws. And as a consequence, Reagan stopped that in 1983 when he ordered the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission to stop basically enforcing those laws. And that led to, we went from something like 7,000 companies on listed exchanges down to around 4,000. And, um, you know, the mergers and acquisition mania, you know, right straight to the Wall Street movie with Michael Douglas. And so as a consequence, uh, not only is, you know, the airline industry and the food industry and the hotel industry and the cell phone industry. And, you know, not only is basically every industry in America heavily concentrated in a small number of hands, but so too is the media. And um, those media companies can make editorial choices. They can choose what they want to carry on their platforms and what they don't. And they've clearly decided, um, some of them explicitly, that carrying content where the host's argue that corporations should have lower and lower taxes over time and that billionaires should not be taxed even as much as average people, that that's to their advantage. So we're operating in a, in a media ecosystem that on its face is hostile to American democracy. It's favorable to aristocracy and oligarchy. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's 1,500 right-wing radio stations out there and maybe 30 left-wing ones of any consequence that there's literally hundreds of right-wing talk show hosts all across the United States. And there's you know, a relatively small handful of left-wing, uh, if you want to call it that. I used to call my show the radical middle, you know, because I can't think of a single position that I hold that isn't held by more than 50% of Americans. I mean, literally. We're in a media environment that's hostile to small-D democracy. And, and so, you know, we do our best. In 2015, Ken Vogel did a piece for Politico where he, a deep dive, where he found that, you know, Heritage and some of these other right-wing foundations were giving, you know, $2 million a year to Rush Limbaugh, a million dollars a year to Sean Hannity, you know, basically subsidizing their shows. I have a a friend who is a right-wing talk show host, and he once told me that we were traveling together, in fact, 
And he once made the comment that, you know, we got into a conversation about money and, you know, and, and he said, yeah, I only make about sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year as my salary, but I'm hauling in a lot more than that. And I was like, how do you do that? And he's like, well, you know, the, all these foundations and all these rich guys, they pay me a speaking fee. So, you know, if I go show up at an event, you know, in a high school, literally in a high school talking to 35 people, I get a $40,000 speaking fee and, you know, 10, 15 of those a year. And I'm doing pretty good. He said, there is nothing like that on the left. Nothing comparable. What do you get for a speaking fee? I, <laughs> I haven't been paid a speaking fee in at least a decade. <laughs> I, I was curious about your friendship that you mentioned with a right-wing talk show host, because those sort of friendships are vanishingly common nowadays. And I was talking to a, a Democratic media consultant who's friends with a Republican media consultant, but an anti-Trump one. How do you maintain a friendship like that in in this day of polarization? Well, ultimately, we haven't. We used to be on each other's show from time to time, but I would just kick his ass on the issues. And we tried not talking about politics, and that didn't work. And eventually, you know, he just lost interest in having that relationship. I haven't talked to him in probably six or seven years. He went through kind of a rough rough patch. His wife died and, and, you know, I, I was trying to be there for him. And, um, but after that, it, it just ended. So I, you're right. They're vanishingly few. You don't want to out argue your friends apparently on, on the air. Um, yeah, I, you know, I thought that we could have this, you know, business is business and, and, and personal is personal, but it's tough. It's tough. I can't imagine being married to a Trump humper, for example, you know? Well, there, there are some of these, White House counselor and anti-Trump lawyer sort of, yeah, that's, that's the model. Actually, I don't want to talk about Carvel and Matlin, but I would, I would think that in a situation like that, probably, you know, you have to have something in common that is the biggest thing. And so if the thing that you have in common that's the biggest thing is that you're both money, making money as political consultants, then the content of that consultation probably is less important than keep bringing in six figures every year. I don't know. I'm not in that situation, so I don't know. We visited before about your Hidden History book series, and I have a advanced, uncorrected galley of the hidden history of neoliberalism. Where are you in this series? It seems like there's been quite a number of them. That book is the eighth. The, I'm writing the ninth right now, which will be the hidden history of American democracy. All probability, that'll be the last one. I'm, I've kind of said what I have to say in, on these topics. Neoliberalism has become sort of a broad word of disapprobation by the left to the economists that are for unfettered capitalism. And you use it pr as a pretty broad term, although you do sort of divide it into conservative neoliberalism and progressive neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism to you? Neoliberalism is an economic and political philosophy that came out of a group of economists who got together initially uh, during World War II in either Paris or Amsterdam, I forget which, to try to come up with a post-war 
economic and political system that would be more resistant to the possibility of either becoming fascist like Germany had done or becoming communist like the Soviet Union had become, like Russia had become. The primary thinkers were Frederick von Hayek and von Mises and Milton Friedman. There were a few other names in there, but those are, those are the three that we most vividly remember, particularly Milton Friedman here in the United States. And the predicating assumption that they built neoliberalism on was that economies are natural and self-regulating systems. And that if you just get out of the way and don't impose too many rules on them, they will always provide the optimal outcome. And that the principal human emotion that drives them is greed and that that is a good thing. Because if everybody operates in their own maximal self-interest, all those billions of decisions that are made every day when people go into stores and decide which item to purchase, et cetera, become a collective wisdom, essentially, a hive mind. And so the theory is that you know taxes are interference in the system, so taxes should be as low as possible, particularly on very wealthy people, because the wealthy people are the largest players in the system, so you want them to have maximum latitude. Same thing with corporations, that the idea of countries protecting themselves, trade protectionism was in their minds one of the things that actually led to World War II. And therefore, all trade should be free. While countries could have borders that limited the movement of people, they should not be allowed to limit the movement of goods or money or services. In other words, free trade. Those are the, the main tenets, I suppose, of it. The consequence of that has been you know, that we have, since we adopted neoliberalism as the official policy of the United States in 1981 with the start of the Reagan presidency, We've had 60,000 factories and some 14 million jobs go overseas. We've seen taxes on the very rich. Corporate taxes were averaging around 50% when Reagan came into office or top, topping out at 50%. The top individual tax bracket was 74%. That top individual tax bracket is down around 30% now. The top corporate bracket is in that same neighborhood. Basically, nobody's paying taxes who makes more than a million dollars a year. It's just all the rest of us. So we've ended up with massive inequality. We've gutted the middle class. When Reagan came into office, around 60% of Americans were in the middle class. Now it's fewer than 45%. And there's been a lot of really negative outcomes as a consequence of this, not the least of which has been the assault on democracy as the holders of vast sums of money have you know, done their best and gone out of their way to acquire political power based on that money. It seems to me that there are elements of that doctrine broadly that seem to have a lot of intellectual appeal that have been persuasive even among the Democrats who've governed that not all of them, but like pieces of it. Yeah. Well, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were both neoliberals. Yes. And, and but also Bill Clinton raised taxes on the wealthy. Well, he he. Those brackets went up under him in a big fight that cost them quite a bit in the run up to 94. So it seems like it's a fairly complicated picture. What do you think it is about neoliberalism that's been so appealing beyond like the, the notion kind of that that corporations are pushing it? There has to be something about the ideas themselves that has had some intellectual weight where the conservatives 
have made so much headway intellectually over this period, in spite of a lot of the evidence that it's not doing well here and around the world? It's been largely based on a lie that itself was based on a, an out-of-context quote from Adam Smith's 1776 book, The Wealth of Nations. In that book, he talked about how even though a person, a businessman, is motivated by his own personal desire for wealth, when he makes decisions, choosing, you know, if you read the entire quote, choosing domestic manufactured goods over foreign manufactured goods, the marketplace will work as if a, an invisible hand were, were guiding it toward the, the optimal result for the country. In fact, that invisible hand is BS. What more and more Americans are realizing, I think, is that this let's just get rid of the rules and let the rich people and the, and the corporations run the show has corrupted the game of economics. I think probably the best analogy is like the NFL. You know, if the NFL was to operate the way that the marketplace works, and say, okay, whichever team gives us the most money can have an extra man on the field or can alter the, the rules. It can lobby us to alter the rules just to advantage them, but not the other team. Eventually, you'd end up with a handful of teams that had the greatest amount of money that were just winning every single game because they had an extra guy on the field or they, they were allowed to grab people by the face mask or whatever because the rules were corrupted. You can't have a game that works and lasts over a long period of time without rules that protect all the players, that protect everybody playing in it. And neoliberalism essentially only protects those who have great wealth or the ability to control great wealth. You know, the initial sales pitch back in the 80s was that free trade is going to open the world to us as potential customers. It turned out that the world doesn't buy that much American stuff. The world loves to sell us stuff, though. I lived in China in 1988, in November of 88, and it was a very, very poor country. I mean, you could literally get a, a four-course lunch for four cents. And the tallest building in Beijing was the 11-story, I think it was a Hilton Hotel. I used to go there for lunch because they had a restaurant on the top floor, and you could get an American meal, a pizza, in fact. We basically shipped all of our manufacturing or much of it over to China. And the consequence of that has been the destruction of the American middle class. And, and also now we're heavily dependent upon a country that is talking about declaring war on us if we try to defend Taiwan. This has not worked out well for the United States. It has not worked out well for democracy. It has not worked out well for the middle class. It has worked out well for a handful of billionaires, for about 1,700 American billionaires and other billionaires around the world. It has worked out really well for the corporations that, you know, following the neoliberal doctrine, merged and, and grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger until they basically dominated industries. We now have literally three men who control more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. That's pretty breathtaking. That had never happened in the history of the United States. And it's purely result of neoliberal economic policies. Given all that, why do you think the economics profession broadly still remains in that camp? I'm not sure it does. There's certainly a strong contingent of neoliberal economists, and they're very well paid. You know, it's just like what we were talking about with radio earlier, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you're a think tank or you're a billionaire who's writing checks as grants to academics, to economists in colleges or, or people who regularly write for publication, 
you're going to be supporting the people who are arguing that you should be able to have very, very low taxes and you should be able to manufacture your crap in, in China rather than in South Dakota. And so those economists that dance to that tune are going to be the ones who have the highest profile and get pushed out the most. But as a profession, economics is rapidly reconciling to the fact that this neoliberal experiment has been a, a horrible, horrible failure. I remember in the book that you talk about sort of the intersection of Trump's first campaign with the complaints of the failures of neoliberalism. Not that he governed in any way as a you know progressive populist or something. He governed as a, another neoliberal, by and large or worse, conservative neoliberal. But like, how do you understand his relationship with these ills in our society that you're talking about? The average American doesn't have any idea what the word neoliberalism means, but they do know what these policies are. And they do know that these policies have destroyed their families, have destroyed their communities and their neighborhoods, have destroyed their children's future and put them in debt, et cetera. So when Trump decided to run for president, he, he made the Bullworth bet. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I did. You know, it's, it's about a politician who just decides to start telling the truth and to hell with the consequences and everybody loves him for it. So Trump came out and he said, you know, they're shipping your jobs overseas. This is part of the plan and I'm going to stop that. Um, he was the first politician to say that since 1981 of any consequence. Well, Perot. Yeah, you had 92, you had Ross Perot. He was, that was the last time a politician on the national stage, at least at that, you know, with that large national microphone, um, spoke like that. So here we are. <laughs> it's, you know, Trump, Trump, you know, he, he identified real problems, most of them the consequence of neoliberalism and said he was going to solve them by being a populist rather than a neoliberal, although largely he followed neoliberal policies. So, Tom, what do you want people to take away from your book on neoliberalism? What, what if you could distill that to a even smaller package than this one, what, what would you like to say? In early 1980, the United States embarked on a grand experiment, a political and economic experiment called neoliberalism. We've been doing it now for 42 years, and it has utterly failed. And it's time to go back to things that work. So if I remember, you like what Alexander Hamilton, as you put it, sort of set the course early on economically for the U.S. Is that what you're preferring as a political, economic. With regard to trade, I'm a fan of Hamilton's plan. With regard to governance, we need to do what we can to strengthen our democracy. We need to get money out of politics, which is when the Supreme Court embraced neoliberalism in the late 70s. And that would cover most of the problems we have. What, what's your level of optimism about us making a change in that direction successfully? There's a school of thought that suggests that America, and not just the United States, you see this in pretty much any other de democracy as well, that there are these two generation experimental shifts that go back and forth and back and forth, that we try something for two generations, which are basically 40 years. And if it succeeds, cool, but it almost never does. Always the new experiment ends up showing its cracks. And so then we try something else for 40 years and then, you know, and we kind of swing back. But by and large, we've swung back and forth in these 40 year cycles, creating one grand 80 year cycle 
over and over and over again between basically conservative and progressive perspectives and values. In fact, Strauss and Howe wrote a book called The Fourth Turning in which they, they posit these 80-year cycles, uh, you know, within which are these two 40-year cycles, um, you know, arguing, they, they published the book in the late 90s, and they said that, you know, by 2020, we would be seeing the, the next turning, that we would be going into the next major generational change. And 80 years back from now was the end of World War II. 80 years before that was the end of the Civil War. 80 years before that was the Revolutionary War. 80 years before that was the War of the Roses. I mean, you know, these cycles are fairly easily identified. And my sense of it is that if we can undo the damage that has been done to our democracy, and, the, and I think the largest piece of that is the Supreme Court's decision that money is just speech, it's not money. If we can undo that damage, then there's a chance that we can recover our Republican form of government and see democracy flourish again. If we fail to do that, I think we are destined to to go the path of Italy in the 20s, Germany in the 30s, and Hungary right now, which is, you know, smack face into authoritarianism. Boy, there aren't that good prospects for turning the Supreme Court around in the short run, are there? Well, there actually are. Congress has tremendous power that it hasn't used in over a century. You know, Abraham Lincoln ignored the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in Dred Scott that every black person in America was the property of a white person. Abraham Lincoln said, I'm just, you know, not going to enforce that ruling. Sorry. Andrew Jackson did the same thing. He ignored two Supreme Court rulings, one that about the Second Bank of America and the other about the Trail of Tears, which the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional. And Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, it explicitly says that the Supreme Court may only operate under rules defined by Congress and may only rule on things under exceptions defined by Congress. So Congress, theoretically, and, and there are a lot of people who are on my side on this. I wrote a book about this called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. I think you can make a very strong case that Congress could pass laws overturning Citizens United and the preceding decisions and barring the Supreme Court from revisiting them. And just that in and of itself would be enough to really turn the ship of state in a radical way very quickly. Yeah, but that's also like if anything, if all everyone's prediction is that Congress is moving the other direction. Now, we were two votes away from what I just described just, you know, just a few months ago. This was the, the For the People Act actually overturned large chunks of Citizens United and introduced the ability of Congress to regulate money in politics and paid for uh, federal funding of federal elections. I mean, it was, it was a very, very substantial piece of legislation that, that would have solved many of the crises we face. And it only failed by two votes in the Senate. It passed the House. Yeah, I'm just saying that it doesn't look like the House or the Senate are moving in a direction where we would get those votes. Oh, the House very much is. And, they, and they've passed you know, a lot of really, really good legislation to deal with these things. The problem has been every single Republican in the Senate is on the take, as are Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. You think they're on the take rather than actually believe the things that they vote for? They brag about it. Sinema's meeting with billionaires very publicly and taking their money. Joe Manchin is the largest recipient of fossil fuel money in the history of the Senate. And he just, surprise, surprise, shot down Joe Biden's bill to regulate fossil fuels or to actually to provide incentives and, and, and boost the, the fortunes of green energy. So, yeah, I do think that. Is there 
Anything else you'd like people to know about your series or this book in particular? With the series, the Hidden History series, I'm trying to uh, look at some of the really critical issues in America and do a deep dive into each one. They're all small books. They're only, you know, 160, 170 pages each. I did a deep dive into the Second Amendment and guns, into the Supreme Court, into the power of monopolies, into the war on voting, which I think is essentially a war on democracy, into oligarchy as a form of government, into Big Brother, the latest book that's out right now, and now into neoliberalism. And, and next, it's going to be more of a history of how we got here. My goal is to is to do what, when Reagan put Bill Bennett in charge of the as secretary of education in charge of the education department, the first secretary of education who was opposed to public schools, uh, Bill Bennett, who said that, and I quote, if you wanted to reduce crime in America, all you'd have to do is abort every black baby, end quote. When Reagan put that guy in charge of the education department, uh, we basically stopped federal funding for civics education in the United States. So I see this, you know, nine book series as your civics class <laughs> you know, so, to fill in the blanks. Well, it sounds like it's been fun for you to put together and maybe uh, fulfilling part of a career. Is that right? It has been. I mean, it's a lot of work writing nine books in four years, but it's it's been a lot of fun and it's been very fulfilling. You've indicated that you're done with the series, more or less, probably after the ninth. Is there another project of that type in your future? Yeah, well, it's already in my present. Uh, a year and a half ago, I started a, a daily newsletter. It's called Hartman Report. The website is hartmanreport.com. And five days a week, I write an op-ed about you know one of the big issues of our time and try to do a, an in-depth, deep dive into it with lots of hot links so people can do their own research. And then on Saturday, I do a summary of the news of the week. And on Sunday, I'm serializing one of my books. It's on Substack. And so it's it's producing you know, some, it, it's free to anybody who wants it. Um, but people can also pay, you know, and basically support my work. And so I've got a little bit of an income from that. And that's my project going forward, I think. That sounds like a good one. I appreciate you taking the time to tell me about your series and your work. Anything else you want to say? No, I, I'm good. Nathaniel, thanks so much for having me on your program. A pleasure. That was Tom Hartman. Tom is at TomHartman.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.